Everybody and welcome to True Stories of Tinseltown. And I have a fabulous guest for you today. Her name is Christina Lane, and she wrote a wonderful book called Phantom Lady, Hollywood producer Joan Harrison, the forgotten woman behind Hitchcock. Hello, Christina, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, Grace. Thank you for having me. I saw you with Eddie Muller. You were on two noir alleys in a row. And I was just so intrigued, and I love the movie. Like I love The Strange Affairs of Uncle Harry, and I'm so thrilled that TCM showed it because it never has, and it's really hard to get. So I had it when I was younger in VHS, but now I have it as a DVD. Uh, no, a DVR. And I learned about Joan through you because I, too, had never, ever heard of her. I've read a lot of stuff on Alfred Hitchcock, and... That name just didn't ring a bell to me. And um, what made you decide to write the book about Joan? Oh yeah, thank you, and I'm glad. I'm glad that the strange affair of Uncle Harry is making a a, a return. Right? <laughs> it's so weird and wonderful. It, you got to watch it. <laughs> it is. It, it really. It really is. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I I learned a little bit about Joan Harrison when I was in an Alfred Hitchcock um, class. You mm-hmm. know, kind of years ago. But um, it's just one of those names that I guess kind of hovered in the background. And then when I began to think about writing a book about the women behind Hitchcock, which I always thought, you know, was interesting because so many women have been influential in his career and, you know, few people know know that. She just kept... um, kind of coming up because I, I think that of, of those women, you know, besides Hitchcock's wife, Joan Harrison has definitely been the most important person, you know, just kind of lasting decades and decades in terms of his, his career and collaborating with him. And she also has the added dimension of being a, a Hitchcock blonde, you know, I think really. <laughs> she was gorgeous. She was very yeah. attractive, very attractive yeah. woman. So why don't you just, we'll just get into her, uh, background briefly, and then we'll get right to Hitchcock. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, in terms of her background, she, you know, so she's born um, outside of London in a suburb, Guilford, Surrey. And um, she was born to a newspaper family. So her father ran the newspaper in Guilford, but she really wanted to break out of out of that, out of the suburbs. And she, she was really bright. She had an Oxford education and she thought she wanted to be a reporter. And her father basically, you know, um, just scrapped that idea. He just really didn't want, want that for her. So when she couldn't do that, she answered the ad, um, to, in a newspaper, a classified ad that she saw to be a personal assistant for a film director or film producer. And when she went online to do that, it turned out that she was online, you know, to, to meet Hitchcock and to be his, his assistant. Um, and so they, you know, she was 26 years old at the time and she was, um, in a very long line to meet this, um, this director. And she realized that she had little chance to make it to the front of the line before someone else was hired. And she found a way to kind of 
basically hustle her way up into up into the front of the line and meet Hitchcock. And it's clear that the first time that he saw her, um, aside from her, you know, her looks and the, and kind of probably that she was really attractive and really striking, um, just their first exchange showed him that she was bright and she had a lot of comebacks and that she would bring a lot to the office because she loved true crime and she loved movies. And I think he saw that she could be much more than a, than an assistant. And they really hit it off. She, um, so she, didn't he kind of say, okay, send all the other women home. And he had lunch mm-hmm. with Joan. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I know it's great. I mean, one of the, one of the ways in which I think, um, you know, she she struck a chord is is that he only needed someone who could like the basic requirement was that he needed someone who could speak German so that that she could translate for the people who were on the on the set. You know, like Peter Laurie, who who was um, German speaking, and so when she said you know no um, because she had studied languages at the Sorbonne and at Oxford, but she had studied only French. So her answer was, you know, no, but I speak French, right, in this very, um, very coy way. He, I think he just, he just ate it up and he realized that, that, you know, she could figure it all out. And so he said, you know, well, I'm, I'm starved, right? I'm famished. Let's, you're hired. Let's go to lunch. So he did. He sent everybody else home and they went to lunch and it was over that lunch that, she, she, you know, she kind of showed him that she'd seen every one of his movies and seen a lot of other movies and had done a lot of reading. She loved literature and again, you know, loved um, stories of crime and had visited the courthouse. So he, I think that he realized she had a lot going for her. Being very attractive. I don't think hurt her. Yeah. <laughs> Let's face it. We have to really call that. But she was, she lived yeah. up to it, but you know, she was attractive and smart and, mm-hmm. you know, really a great help to him. So yeah. she was a secretary. She got, she got the job as a secretary, but that didn't last long. Right. So it turns out that she, she says, you know, she was the worst secretary he he ever had. Um, <laughs> and with, within two to three weeks, you know, it was clear that she, she couldn't do anything that, um, that she was supposed to do. So she couldn't take dictation. She couldn't answer phone calls. She couldn't really take notes in a meeting. Um, and so, so the, the good news was that she, she had all of these other great skills. She was, um, you know, because she had been an avid reader, she was, she could get story. She understood, um, character and story. And so what he, he moved her into that kind of department of story of being a reader and also helping to decide what kind of material would be fitting for Hitchcock and, um, and coming in with, with notes about, you know, what she had read the night before and trying to kind of re reenact actually the books and the, and the short stories that, that she'd read because the last thing that he wanted to do was read. So she would do that for him. And also soon after that, I should say she began writing. So she became a screenwriter pretty, pretty quickly. So she kind of zoomed and how old was Joan when she met him? So she was 26 years old when she met him. And yeah, by the time she was, you know, 28 or 29, she was, she was writing screenwriting. And she, I mean, talk about luck and, Everything. I mean, having the nerve to, like, say, move over, girls. I'm lying here and I'm going to the front of the line. I mean, yeah, she had, yeah. she was determined and she had a lot of ambition. And if she didn't, she would not have get, gotten anywhere because women were not really 
widely known to be producers, writers, <clears throat> things like that, especially in those days. So, you know, she she came by it by being very strong and determined. And I think he he was he sounded a little smitten with her throughout the book, I have to say. Yes. Hitchy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, what did you say? Hitchy, her nickname for him. Hitchy. Oh, Hitchy, yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right, so, right, very quickly, um, right, he became Hitchy and she became Joni and they were, you know, quite familiar with each other. And and I guess that's a point to be made is that she really did become part of the family. You know, mm-hmm. I talk about that in my in my book. Um, that she, I mean, she'd been dissatisfied with her own family and she became adopted, you know, so to speak, by, by Hitchcock and his wife, Alma Revel, so that they began to take vacations together and she really spent most evenings with them. And, you know, we can talk a little bit more about that, kind of what that um, relationship was like, basically between the three of them, which I think was really complicated. I do too. Um, (laughs) You explained it very well, by the way. Thank you. Um, Um, Yeah, Alma, you know, she was great. I mean, what, And but really she was the only woman I knew that really had the direct influence with him. So... mm -hmm. um, she really, he trusted Alma implicitly, but he was a flirtatious lad, and um, mm-hmm. he was corpulent, as one might say. <laughs> yes. he, he was a yeah. rather large fellow. I know he went up and down, but, you know, he was large. And yeah. there was always speculation and people kind of sour graping that she exchanged sexual favors to get her to get in with him. And I don't think that's true. Right, right. So, right. All evidence, you know, suggests that she she wouldn't have done that and she wasn't, you know, interested in entertaining any of Hitchcock's advances. And probably if he did make any advances, he's, he's probably stopped pretty quickly based on Joan's personality. Yeah. So, you know, and so I think that that um, pretty early on, um, Joan and Hitchcock did form a professional collaboration Um and if anything, as as you're suggesting too, right, that he had this underlying, this like deep, um, more underlying like obsession um, with her, but that it was it was all kind of playing out underneath the surface, which which worked all the better for Joan, you know, because then then um, then he was Hitchcock was then like pouring some of that into his creative process, but at least Joan wasn't dealing with it at at the office. So, um, yeah, so to speak. that would be yeah. very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what was her yeah. first main film that she was working on with um, Sir yeah. Alfred? Right, right. So when she joins the, te- the team, when she joins, um, you know, because Alma Revel was, was always really involved. And per- particularly, I think she was training Joan Harrison to learn what I call kind of the, the secret codes that, that only Alma Revel and Hitchcock knew in terms of adapting work for the screen. When Joan joins them, it's in 1933, and they're working on... Um, the man who knew too much. And, and so she's really getting her training through that film. And then the 39 steps. Uh And by the time, um, you know, basically she becomes kind of, I don't know, a strong enough voice within the team that she can propose her own project. It's, 
young and innocent that she says, you know, this is kind of the film I'd really like to be um, in, involved in. Like she, her name is not on the script, but she's really heavily involved in the writing and the development almost as, almost as like a producer. So young and innocent in 1937 is really when you can see Joan Harrison's imprint begin um, on Hitchcock's films. I like that film very much. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It's, it's a, it's a lot of fun and it, and it's, um, female protagonist, you know, played by Nova Pilbeam is really quite interesting. Just she, she is the daughter of a police man, right? Of a police, um, investigator. So you've got that sense that she's both trying to do an investigation, but also re- kind of rebelling against her father's own, um, you know, tendencies, right? So she's both like her dad, but also a bit rebellious. I think kind of like Joan herself. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. And then the next one was, uh, what was that great? Oh, um, the one on the train. Yeah, so The Lady Vanishes. That's a great film. Next, Yeah. And um, and again, so Joan's name is not on The Lady Vanishes, but it's clear that she was more of a creative producer, kind of tying all the, tying all the pieces together and keeping everybody um, on this kind of cohesive, um, you know, tight kind of line. And so I think The Lady Vanishes is, is definitely a film where you see a lot of Joan Harrison in it, even though it's not not necessarily a quote unquote Joan Harrison film, you know, and then, and then after that comes Jamaica in, and that is the first film where she gets her a screenwriting credit. And she really did. I think, um, even though that's, that's kind of a strange film because it was a, a production by Eric Palmer and Charles Lawton, and they're kind of taking control or fighting over control for Jamaica in, but Joan Harrison probably had a good deal to do with, with the development of, of the, you know, pr- protagonist there and some of the material. Maureen O'Hara up there when she was 18. Yeah. I've never seen that film. I must, must watch it. I know it's yeah. on YouTube so I can find it. So I'll have to check it out. But mm-hmm. Charles can be, Charles Lawton was a handful, let's face it. And mm-hmm. <laughs> they, uh, yeah. didn't, um, Hitchcock really wanted to work with Charles Lawton. And, um, but it, it, I don't know. It just didn't seem, he was just, he's very strong. He's very strong, Charles. Let's put it that way. He's very strong. But I think he was, yeah, I think he was really trying to, you know, see, I guess maybe steal the scenes and really take all the part for himself. And so probably, (laughs) you know, I think like the idea of working with Charles Lawton was a lot more appealing than the reality for for Hitchcock. Yes. A scene stealer. We know those people. (laughs) And so she did Jamaican. And then... They do take a trip and they bring Joan to America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they um, they take an initial trip, you know, to scout out whether Hollywood is, is going to be a good place for them. And they take Joan then. And, um, and then she realizes that she would very much like to go to Hollywood, that that's kind of her aspiration. So then in 1939, when Hitchcock and Alma Revel move to Hollywood, the only person that they take, you know, outside, like besides their daughter, Patricia Hitchcock, um, the only, you know, collaborator that they bring with them to the United States is Joan Harrison. So she comes along. And as I say that, you know, that begins her own American adventure, really. And they also Um, have, they're doing their first American film, which is Rebecca. Yes. So, yes. And so they start, um, you know, for, with David O'Selznick, they, they, they make Rebecca and Rebecca 
is important too, just because that's a property that Joan Harrison fell in love with, you know, the Daphne du Maurier novel, mm-hmm. and she brought it, you know, brought it to Hitchcock as something she loved and wanted to make. Um, well, at the same time over there in the United States, um, you know, Kay Brown was bringing kind of, I think, bringing the book to David O. Selznick and saying she thought it would be great for Selznick. So these two different women in different countries were both seeing the potential for that book. And then it all kind of comes around together as um, as everybody comes to Hollywood and decide, you know, and, and they finally do make Rebecca. I love Rebecca. It's funny. Yeah. Um, they wanted... Charles Boyer, right? To be Maxime? Yes. But he's yeah. French. <laughs> I don't know what kind of an English accent he could do. And this is before right. Gaslight. But I thought that the casting of Laurence Olivier was perfect. I thought, mm-hmm. I know that uh, Vivian Lee did a horrible, I saw the screen test. You can get that. If you guys ever want to check out Vivian Lee, um, screen testing for Rebecca, it's on YouTube. And I've posted it before, but. She was not good in that, that's for sure. No. You know what fascinated me, Christina? Because you said that there was problems because um, the first Mrs. DeWinter, uh, Mm -hmm. no name, the second Mrs. DeWinter, no name, was supposed to be more spunky, have a little more um, backbone than Joan Uh Fontaine did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, so... Joan Harrison wanted, you know, wanted that protagonist, the second Mrs. De Winter, to have more, um, more backbone and to be more assertive. And so I think even to be more assertive than the character in the novel, partly because that's just what Joan always wanted, right? Joan Harrison always wanted her characters to be, to have a little bit more uh, um, agency and, and, and to show more more spunk and more power. So that was the first thing that she pushed Hitchcock to kind of push, you know, as they were even making negotiations about him going to Los Angeles. And, and that was where the Selznick team pushed back. Um, as you know, as I talk about in my book and it's been talked about even before really is, is basically Selznick is so faithful to the source material every time he makes a movie that he said, you know, readers are expecting to see, that character from the book and they'll be put off if the character has changed very much. And so it kept kind of going back and forth and back and forth. Um, and I think that, that Joan Harrison probably did infuse a little bit of this in the character, just in terms of moments where she really does stand up, you know, to Mrs. DeWinter. Um, and even in the beginning, like when we first meet Joan Fontaine's character and she does seem pretty, pretty bouncy and, you know, pretty kind of, even as um, the assistant or the companion to Mrs. Van Hopper, she does seem to be a bit more, um, you know, kind of in control or three-dimensional. And then she, the point is that she loses it when she goes to, to Manderley. Which you can't she, blame her meeting that dream about <laughs> Mrs. Danvers. Oh, what a right. horror story. That's creepy. And um, yeah, she just literally, I, I know um, O'Selznick really wanted Joan. And mm-hmm. he wouldn't go further. Who did Hitchcock want someone in particular, or was he fi- fine and dandy with Joan? So you know, the 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 person that he really wanted was Nova Pilbeam. Um, oh. You know, he wanted to bring her over from England because he just he just thought that she was the the best. She she was his favorite. So from young and innocent, um, and then 
Isn't she in another of his films? Uh, well, she was obviously, she's in The Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, sorry, she's in, yeah, The Man Who Knew Too Much as a teenager, right? So um, so when she was younger, she was in that earlier film. So I think he, he saw her, I guess, as, as the screen ideal for a Hitchcock heroine. But um, Selznick knew, you know, that that would be a disaster for mm-hmm. the American box office. You know, like nobody would know who Nova Pilbeam was. Um, at least that wasn't going to be the right character for, for this movie, Rebecca. Um, and there were, as you, as you, um, as you know, right, there were a lot of screen tests for, for Joan Fontaine's part. And you can see some of them on, on YouTube and it's fun to watch. It is Um, very fun to watch. Yeah. Um, but, but Selznick did have this crush on Joan Fontaine. She was really young watching the movie now. I think she was like 19 years old when she shows off this. <laughs> and she was in the women the year before. So she was what, 19, 18 years old in that. And she mm-hmm. really hadn't done much. I think that was her biggest film was yeah. the women. And yeah. he did fall in love with Joan, huh? Yes, I, I believe so. And so it was almost a foregone conclusion that she would be cast. Um, so, you know, Hitchcock wasn't going to be able to win that battle. Um, and I don't think that he, you know, I think as we, as we read in Joan Fontaine's biography or autobiography, she, she says that Hitchcock made her feel insecure throughout the production, but that it really did work. Yes. Um, in the end. Yeah. Because I think everybody pretty much was English except for her. And she said, they would all have tea time and Joan would feel like an outsider, you know, tea and crumpets. And Joan right. was the outsider person. And it did work well because her care, I thought she was great in this. And I thought she should, should get the Academy Award for this rather than um, Suspicion, although she was great in that as well. But mm-hmm. I mean, she really literally kind of shrunk when she went into Manderley. You just see her kind of going into herself and kind of becoming this like timid mouse. And I loved wasn't it Joan's idea about the no paper and, uh, you know, the Rebecca haunting stuff all over the place? Yes. And the yeah. pillow covers and yes. all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you go into the um, into the archives, I mean, one of the very few places that you can find Joan Harrison's own, you know, handwriting and her own notes is in the Rebecca, the files for Rebecca, where there's a file called, you know, writer's notes by for Joan Harrison. And she was working that so hard, just basically finding ways for the audience to identify with, with Joan Fontaine's character through very, you know, kind of... Um, very domestic details and, you know, just kind of what we think of as kind of trivial, very trivial ways that, um, through, right through correspondence, um, and through the letter R. I know that David O'Selznick was also really interested in that as well. Kind of the, kind of keeping that cursive letter R on the screen. Yeah. So glamorous. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Very glamour. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think that it was almost for two different reasons because Selznick, that there's a way in which that keeps up in the book. There's like a, a, um, a reminder of the, of the script letter R that keeps happening in the book. And I think Joan, um, understood that, but she also really wanted to capture women's fascination, you know, with, with everything around, around the house. And asking people, what was Rebecca like? Asking his best friend. I think she was the most beautiful creature I ever saw. And then Joan (laughs) shrinks again. (laughs) 
Yes, yeah. Yeah. it just shrinks into herself. But uh, I love the scene when she, when Maxine tells her, "Love her, love her." I hated her, and then Joan's going, "You hated her." She got this big smile on her face. You hated her. I loved her. My accent stinks, you guys. I'm sorry, but <laughs> what do you want? But it was yeah. a good film, and also uh, Maxine was supposed to have shot her, but right. he would have had to pay mm-hmm. the price. As a murderer, mm-hmm. it's after the code, and he would have had to pay the price as a murderer, so they changed it to yes. accidental death. Yes, right, where he pushes her down, right, and she, her head accidentally hits um, hits the anchor. So, right, so um, because of the censorship codes of the time, he, he couldn't come off as a villain, um, as that much of a villain, as somebody who would shoot her dead. Um, and and still, well, he would have had to have been punished to the point where there couldn't have been a happy ending with the couple. So, um, so yeah, they, they the, the writers had to work out, and it took months and months of, of trying to finagle how this was all going to go go down in terms of how could how could he both kill Rebecca but come off as a non murderer, right, <laughs> right, um, and so they did come up with this accidental death scenario, and um, and. And suggesting that she goaded him into it because she already, you know, knew that she had cancer and, and basically she didn't wanted, have long, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that the other part is how interestingly it was filmed in terms of showing the 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 murder scene um, even without having Rebecca in the frame is so so well done. I think it was great that they didn't have Rebe- any character play Rebecca because the you know the imagination is so much better for that. And, and then you see this, you know, this. Who could who could be Rebecca? You know, really, who right, could be right. Rebecca? So it was perfect. Us never seeing her, just yeah. hearing all about her. Yeah, the perfection of Mrs. Duinta. But um, <laughs> then they did. Let's see. They went, and she became part of the Hollywood crowd. She befriended Gable and Lombard, and uh, they would lots of people. She became part yeah. of that whole scene. Yes. Yeah. So, right. She became, um, you know, also just kind of part of the, the expatriate community. So really becoming friends with the European emigres. And so she was learning her, her own consciousness was being raised in terms of learning mm-hmm. about kind of the political situation, um, you know, as, as fascism was rising and as the United States was kind of, you know, in the middle of, um, of changing its own political orientation. So Joan was also learning um, um, a new kind of political, through a new political lens. But but what that really means too is, is she's learning it through the artists that she's meeting. And so she was having, um, you know, all evidence suggests that she's having a relationship with Billy Wilder. She was um, becoming really good friends with Francho Tone. I love who, who was. Yeah, I know. He's, right. He was a great, um, great actor, a great friend of hers and also very politically minded, you know, so she was going to Salka Rattel's, um, you know, Sunday soup, um, soup um, parties. And also um, she had a relationship with Erwin Shaw, the, the writer, uh-huh. which which was, I think, very important, like a very important relationship for her. And and another one of those kind of life-changing events in terms of the way that she was thinking about things. She also became very close friends with uh, Paul Henry and his wife. I had his yeah. daughter on my show, a Monica. Mm-hmm. 
and I know you've mm-hmm. talked to her for the book, but um, he had his troubles, and they were going to keep him there as a spy or something that he was working with the Nazis in England, so he luckily got out of there. But, yes. um, you know, she really did get an eye-opener because it hadn't really hit London yet, and it was it was just a horrific time. But she really, you know— as a direct, as a producer, a writer, an author, she got out there. It wasn't like she was just working all the time. And yeah. you said that perhaps somebody put out there that she, after Carol Lombard died, um, she started dating Gable. But mm-hmm. somebody said maybe she started dating him before Carol died. Yes. Well, he, he, yes. he cheated on Carol left and right, let's face facts. And he mm-hmm. thought of it as nothing like changing his socks. That's what he really would tell Carol. And I think forever he felt guilty about what he did. And I, you know, we were discussing Robert Matson and Fireball, which I love that book. And I love yeah. Robert. And mm-hmm. um, I think he became more the man Carol wanted after she died. I mean, he was just really not nice. And she, you know, you shouldn't have to spy on your husband and go to these sets so that he doesn't have affairs with women. He's, he right. just did. So right. I, I don't know. And she really didn't yeah. feel bad about that, about having extramarital affairs. She didn't feel guilt about that. Right. Oh, right, jo- Joan. I mean, I think you're you're totally right about um, about Clark Gable and, and becoming, right, uh, more, more the person, um, you know, reforming himself, right? right. Becoming more the person, um, that, that, uh, a better husband basically after Carol Lombard died, but, and, and Joan Harrison, yeah, she, I, I'm not sure it's probably, it's very probable that she, um, she would have been romantically involved with Clark Gable, you know, at any point because, um, just because of his nature. And then because she didn't necessarily hold, you know, matrimony to, to be a sacred thing. No. And she, you know, she did kind of just live from day to day. And, and she, she's, you know, one of the, the quotes that I, that I got was basically, if you, if you love somebody at the time, meaning I think if you have really strong feelings for someone at the time, then, then it's okay. Um, but I don't think that she took, um, you know, cared too much whether someone was married or not, which obviously uh, comes with, you know, comes with problems. Yes. Um, yeah. So um, let's get back to, she worked on Suspicion as well, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And that was so, a lot of uh, brouhaha with that, with the ending, with Johnny, with Cary Grant, with the whole nine yards. So why don't you tell yeah. us? <laughs> Tell a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, I mean, Suspicion is, is a film where there was a lot of writing and rewriting. Uh-huh. She, you know, and she worked on that with Alma Revel and then Samson Rafelson, who was um, kind of back and forth between the East Coast and the West Coast, helping to write the, the script. And since that was based on the novel before the fact, um, there was, you know, there was source material so in in the novel um it's it, it basically i think that johnny is um is a murderer i believe it's more well it's more that that he's he's worse he's a worse character and that we we understand that um that lena our female character is basically willing to die she's she's willing to drink the poison and just um kind of annihilate herself for johnny in the book and so in the 
in the movie, there was no way that Cary Grant was going to, to end uh, off being a murderer. And some people say that this is based on the censorship rules, but it's also, I think, known that Cary Grant just didn't want his image to be that of a murderer. And the, and the studio, RKO, his home studio, was definitely not going to let their romantic comedy star, you know, be such a villain. In but suspicion. he was a villain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even if he, he wasn't, wasn't a, a murderer, guy. he was a villain. He was a horrible <laughs> he was, man. <laughs> he was really bad. Yeah. In, in the book, didn't he have an affair with... Um, the maid. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, in the book, it's just layer upon layer of, of, of badness, right? He's just, he's really despicable. And um, he wasn't, I thought in the movie as well. And she never trusts him after she finds, right. you know, the, the, the uh, he lies. I love his friend. Um, what's his name? Is it Beaky? Beaky. Beaky. Yeah. <laughs> I love him. And he's trying to tell Oh, he comes up with the most howling lies and he's like needling Lena and she sees how he's lying and that he took the chairs and they sold them for two grand and whatever. But he is not a good guy. And you know what? I just thought the ending stunk. <laughs> to be uh-huh, honest uh-huh. with you. Yeah. I you know, I just why didn't he kill himself a long time ago? Why did he have to go through all this <laughs> drama? You know, it was for me. I couldn't get the money. I want to kill myself. So, I mean, yeah. he's putting her through all this torture. It's like, kill mm-hmm. yourself already, pal. And I love right. I love also the, mm-hmm. the writer, Isabel, and I totally got that takeaway of her, her, I would say that would be her partner, the woman who was mm-hmm. pouring the wine and, you know, dressed in yeah. masculine garb, and um, that they had a relationship. So that was pretty big. It, I mean, they didn't have to spell it out for you, but I think that was, you know, pretty, I, I don't know. You'd have to yeah. get that. Yeah, yeah. That So um, so Phyllis is the, you know, right, is the partner, I think we can presume. And it is so subtle that um, that she's there with Isabel kind of around that dinner table, but they kind of relate to each other like a couple. They do, very much. Yeah. And I think that, that the biggest point, and I, I, you know, I kind of worked through this in, in the book, is number one, that Phyllis's character is not in the original book. It's not in before yeah. the fact. Um, and so it's something that, that the writers, and I'm, I'm really presuming this was Joan Harrison and Alma Revel, concocted, like they went out of their way to come up with this idea, you know, um, that Isabel had a female partner. And, and then when they wrote it into the script, the censors tried to take it out or at least really tamp it down and they fought for it, meaning that it was really something like a, either a device or just an addition that they really cared about. So, um, you know, to me, I always found um, Joan Harrison and Alma Revel's own relationship to be interesting. And I, you know, all evidence suggests that they were not, again, romantically together. But I just think that as collaborators, you know, as creative collaborators, they worked really in interesting ways. And they were always looking for, for feminist avenues or for lesbian undertones yeah. um, in their work, you know, in their work. And that's amazing that they didn't give it up. And it's funny that it wasn't in the book. So yeah. they just added that. So yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I thought it was nice. I thought it was like they're just having a family dinner, and that's way ahead of its time. That they're just together and they're having drinks, and that weirdo, uh, the guy, her brother, who's cutting up the, the, <laughs> the chicken, the dried chicken, and talking about yeah. poisoning and things. He was funny. Um, I know. So um, was that the, the last major film Joan worked for with Hitchcock? Hitchcock. 
Right. So she, um, so in between Rebecca and Suspicion, she worked on foreign correspondent. Um, and then after Suspicion, she worked on Saboteur. But it was really kind of in the middle of Saboteur that I think she had had enough. She just honestly felt like she was doing the same thing over and over again. So she wrote substantial drafts of Saboteur, meaning, you know, we can say that she, like her name is on the script and it really should be, you know, credited. But she, she left at that kind of in the middle of, of, of that film and went on to try to make a go of it as a writer. And as, as you know, from the book, it really didn't go well for like a year and a half. She, she struggled as a screenwriter. Um, how was it, how did Hitchcock take it when she left the fold? He, so he, uh, had a difficult time, although I think he'd always known that she was going to leave at a certain point. And that's, that's to his credit because he saw himself as someone who wanted people to, you know, to rise and, and do their best and thrive. And he, I think, saw, you know, whether this was like a charitable view of himself, but he saw himself as grooming her, you know, to become a, a successful producer. That was what she did best. So he must have seen it in, you know, kind of coming along, but it just came much more quickly than he had hoped. So he was devastated and he, you know, ran off to, you know, to Selznick, who was essentially the the person who was running the contracts for them and the money and, uh, and was really raging at Selznick asking for him to give more money to Harrison and do whatever needed to be done to keep her, to keep her with Hitchcock. And um, Selznick refused. And the person who was also trying to mediate this was John Houseman, the producer, John Houseman. And eventually it was Houseman who settled Hitchcock down and said, look, you really need to just recognize, you know, that, that she needs to go and you need to, to let her go. Yeah, and she had a relationship with John Houseman as well, right? Yes. <laughs> so in the middle, right in the middle of all this, they were they were having a relationship. <laughs> yeah. So she uh, she does too. Okay, the Seventh Cross. Mm-hmm. Joan was there, and she hated Spencer Tracy. She thought he was totally miscast in that film. Yeah, it's a good film. Yeah, I I thought he was miscast as well. Um, so I'm with her. There's also one that was, she was doing with Charles Boyer, Hong Kong. And then yes. that just went kaput. Yes, yes. So she was working on that at MGM. I mean, the, the number of studios that she worked. I know. You know they got her here, there. She was like a <laughs> ping pong ball here, there, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I think that when she was with um, writing for Charles Boyer, it's almost like he had a, a mini unit, you know, um, under MGM. She probably felt like she had it made because here she is with a huge star writing kind of an epic film at the, you know, the grand MGM studio. And then he decides to just walk out on his contract and start his own independent company. And that left her in a lurch. Um, so that film was never made and the script just got shelved. And then I love this. Um, she does, which is the name of the book, which is a perfect name for Joan, Phantom Lady. And mm-hmm. it is perfect because, like I said, how many of us knew Joan was that important to Hitchcock or or did all these films? I did not. And it was a perfect name for a book. And she got in. Did she find Phantom Lady? Yeah. So she, you know, I think she was a big fan of Cornell Woolridge, who wrote the novel Phantom Lady. And she... Uh, I believe that she, what she wanted was to write 
you know, write the script or pitch the script, which was an adaptation of a phantom lady, and then hope that a studio would, would bring her on, um, or buy it, right. Buy Mm -hmm. it from her. And then, no, her agent was basically representing Phantom Lady to various studios, and nobody, um, nobody liked her version because it really was a feminist twist on the Woolridge novel, where you know she takes this side character who wasn't even the secretary um, to the main to the main character who's thrown in jail for you know wrongfully wrongfully thrown in jail. She um, she takes that character who becomes Ella Raines and makes her a secretary so that then the secretary can become kind of the detective in the film who wants to save her boss. And so, you know, I think that studios really didn't, they, they were not as, as prescient as Joan was in terms of understanding there was a female wartime audience just waiting for this kind of, um, film film noir and, you know, and finally it was universal who apparently came back with this, right. This kind of, um, turnaround that said, well, if you really want to make this film, if you think this film should be made, then why don't you produce it yourself? And they offered her a gig producing it at Universal. And I think it, you know, at least this is the story she tells. I don't know if this is true, but I, I do think that this is the story where she was almost surprised at the thought that she could produce it, but she, she grabbed that chance. And she did a wonderful job. And the cast was Ella Raines. And Ella had only done a couple films. She did the one where she was uh, uh, a volunteer in yeah. the uh, the war, right? She did that one yeah, beforehand. She, um, yeah, she did Cry, uh, Cry Havoc. Is that yes, the one you're that's thinking? that's what I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and Corvette K-225. And right? also... K-2- the Preston Foster one, right? Not Preston Foster was an actor. Preston Sturges. Preston Sturges, yes. Um, and that, well, she did the Howard Hawks Corvette K-225. And then, but you're thinking the Preston Sturges, it might have come out. She did, right, Hail the, Hail the Conquering Hero. Um, and I think she actually filmed that after she filmed Phantom Lady. Uh, it just happened to come out, you know. Before. So all that was, yeah, yeah. But can, kind of probably... You know, it's all kind of ha- bubbling up at the same at the same time. It's a great story. Ella is fabulous in this, and Francho was in it, and I thought he was great. And I mm-hmm. love that Carmen Brand's sister was a chiquita, chiquita lady. <laughs> chiquita. Yes, <laughs> and she had a fit over this hat that this phantom lady was wearing because yeah. no one wears her hats but her. You know that that was her whole thing, and yeah. it was just such a good book. <laughs> Uh, the uh, Cook Jr., you know, when he, he's the Hep Cap a cat mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Ella becomes like Hep Catette and she's wearing <laughs> the, the mini skirt, tacky clothes, uh, fishnet stockings, chomping on gum. Yeah, that's Hep. That's groovy. That's Hep. That's right, funny. right. And then yeah. the big old drum scene mm-hmm. with him, which I think is funny. And everybody says it's like, uh, sexual drumming. It's like this big climax of boom. Right? <laughs> right, <laughs> That's what right. It is. Yeah. I've heard that all over the place. Yeah, right. That I mean, so Elisha Cook Jr., right, is drumming um, in this very rhythmic fashion as she's basically dancing right in front of him in this <laughs> rhythmic fashion. <laughs> um, and there's are supposedly downstairs in this underground, like... Um, Hepcat you know, drums yes. and musicians right. playing together, yeah. 
Yeah, this drug den. Exactly, exactly. And um, and it was built, I mean, even the film, um, even the publicity department built it as, you know, one of the most, one of the boldest scenes that you're, you know, that have ever has ever been made for the screen. So they weren't, you know, it's not, I think they were trying to exploit the the sexual nature of the quote unquote, of the drumming, <laughs> um, um, which, which does really... I mean, you know, it does really kind of culminate in this moment, I guess, where you're supposed to assume that the, the drummer has has really reached like a, a particular crescendo. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So he's wonderful. So I love him as an actor. He's so great. Yeah, he is great. He is great, and the whole thing is really campy. You know, the way that this is done is is really campy. It is because she, you yeah. just don't buy her as a hep cat. I'm sorry. No, Ella, you're adorable, no. but hep cat, you ain't chomp chomp no. chomp. Yeah. <laughs> So after that, I really do want to talk about Harry, but Mm -hmm. she did do Dark Waters, and they got Merle Oberon, who was supposedly a pain in the arse, in every production she did, and Francia Tone was the co-star, and Mm -hmm. he did not like Merle, but he got through through the filming, and he he was very good in that. And uh, I thought that was a good movie, not the best, but it was Mm -hmm. very good. And then yeah. she does The Strange Affairs of Uncle Harry. I have a couple of questions to ask you with this one, but why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so this is, um, you know, this is interesting partly because finally Joan has kind of come back to Universal, so she has a much better deal in place, and she's she's feeling creative freedom. And with that, she wants to make the strange affair of uncle Harry, which had been a play and, um, and had done really well as a play. And it brings out all of these, right. Kind of sexual, um, (laughs) right. We should say overtone, um, (laughs) overtones, overtones, underlined. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Where, where, um, where uncle Harry is, is this kind of middle-aged, um, man whom everybody knows as uncle. And he has two, he lives with two sisters who are both, again, quote unquote, spinsters. I would never use these, these words, but they're kind of, yeah. Right. Well, no, um, uh, one of them is Hester was a widow. Yeah, it was a widow. So yeah, she's not a spinster. Yeah. She's a widow. No, she's a widow. <laughs> and so, no, you're absolutely right. And 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 Letty, who, who's played Letty. by Ella Fitzgerald, right? Geraldine has, um, Fitzgerald <laughs> has a really deep yeah. attachment to Uncle Harry, Grossly. and it's just gross. Yes, gross attachment. And then, and even Hester um, does, you know, played by is it Moyna McGill, right? Yes, she, Angela Lansbury's right. mom. Yes. She, too, has, um, you know, I mean, she's just really, everybody cares too much about Uncle Harry, and he wants to get out of that claustrophobic setting of this small town. In the film, it's the small New England town. And so in comes, in walks Ella Raines, who is, you know, a fabulous um, designer from New York City, and he sees, I think he falls in love and would really like to just kind of escape and get married. But the two sisters really tie him down. And he realizes that it's going to be, um, he has to make a choice. And it's the, it's Ella Raines who really pins him down and says, you have to choose a, a life of freedom or. Or basically, um, I think in the movie, Hester was happy for Harry and mm-hmm. he fought with Nettie all the time. Letty, Letty. Yeah. And yeah. Um, Letty, you know, she was like in love with Harry. She wore this like provocative 
um, lingerie around him all the time. I th- even think she wore those kind of slippers that they sell at Fredericks of Hollywood, you know, like with this yeah. <laughs> and like yeah. this chiffon wrap. And um, I don't know. See, it wasn't a book because I was wondering why two people in the film called him Uncle Harry. And I was always wondering why in the world was he called Uncle Harry? Yeah, I think it's it's um, the suggestion that everybody in the town called him that as as though they understood he was never, you know, he was an eternal bachelor, you know, and it's all kind of a weak, a bunch of weak links, but it's just kind of like, oh, there goes frumpy Uncle Harry again down, you know, walking down the street. I love the casting. Uh, Uncle Harry. Yeah. He was I know. George Sanders, the, the fiend, the erudite fiend in so many movies. And mm-hmm. he played the milk toast, Uncle Harry. <laughs> and he was being cuckolded by Letty until Deborah comes to town. And here she is. You say the wardrobe was there that she, she wore like the short little things and she even wore ties and things like that. And she was, mm-hmm. you know, she was a strength. Harry was yeah. weak, and she was that strength and backbone of Harry, and she knew what Nettie was, Letty was up to from the get-go, and yeah. um, she was wonderful, and I really liked that, and that was like a conscious choice on Joan's part and uh, Ella to get her dressing, you know, not like foo foo fee do or anything like that, but just more of a, you know, take charge and she looked great. I mean, her clothes are fabulous, but you know what I mean? Yeah. What you were saying? Yeah, I do. I do. And in fact, in the original, in the play, that character of, of Deborah, who is, you know, kind of the woman who comes in from the outside is actually really, um, really passive and not mm. at all, you know, not at all kind of the this strong modern woman and she's actually a widow <laughs> she's a widow which um which is the only thing that really allows her to to come in and be mar- kind of marriage material because otherwise if she'd been a single woman she would have been too much of a threat and um and actually the original script that Joan Harrison worked on um with with Keith Winters and um, who else was oh and Stephen Longstreet had her as a divorcee had Deborah you know coming in from New York City as a divorcee and that was squashed because she would have been too her femininity would have been too threatening so so even just to have her as a single woman mm-hmm. was apparently you know who was well dressed and kind of modern and coming in from this urban setting was apparently a big deal. In, within you know, kind of as the story evolved, and she was great. And I have to say, yeah. Geraldine Fitzgerald was wonderful. I loved all the yeah. cast. I thought the cast was great and really good. George did a fabulous job. And um, but that it it was such a gross, sick relationship with that woman. I mean, she didn't make any pretense about her feelings for Harry. But it was never was never really. Um stated that they had ever been sexual. I don't believe they were. Right. I think right. That they that it was just her being in love with Harry, which she was in love with Harry. She didn't see anybody. She didn't do anything. And she had, oh, my heart, you know, that kind of thing to, <laughs> to bring him home and whatever. It's a really good movie, you guys, and I hope you get to see it, and I hope you DVR'd it and watched Eddie and Christina. It was great. It's it's really an interesting movie. I wrote about it a while ago, and uh-huh. I just really like it. And I think it's um, 
It's not like one you'd you'd ever seen. But the ending, there was this big brouhaha about the ending. Yeah, right. I mean, and again, this is a question of whether, um, of kind of who who's going to die. I won't go. You know, I just won't go into too much of it because we don't, don't want to spoil because it, yeah. it's a good movie to watch. You guys will love it. Yeah. But yeah. they didn't want to come in to fil- to refilm. Okay, yeah, I will say, yeah, I will definitely say that much, which is that the the studio did not want to end the film as as originally, you know, it had been written and, and they felt that it was too somber and too adult and they knew that they, you know, wanted to target uh, the younger teenage audience. Well, I so don't they wanted, get that. <laughs> I know. Do you? I don't think teenagers no. would want to go see that movie. That's an adult film. They would be bored. Exactly. Yeah. No. I know. I agree. I agree. It's and, so and, weird. Right. And changing it to a rosy ending, you know, yeah. where the characters walk off into the sunset is not going to suddenly grab the teenage audience no. into the theaters. Yes. Um, yeah. And so basically Joan Harrison walked off, not only walked off the set, um, but just walked out of her contract and left the studio altogether. And as you say, there were others, you know, Robert Siodmak refused to film those um, final scenes and other actors. Geraldine Fitzgerald. I know. Skadooby-doo. You're my fucking Valentine. Geraldine Fitzgerald. She was tough. She was a very strong mm-hmm. woman. And mm-hmm. she wouldn't come back. And yeah. so she worked with uh, Robert Montgomery. Yeah. Did they have uh, a Joan? Joan ended up working with Harrison, worked with Robert mm-hmm. Montgomery. And mm-hmm. did they have a romantic relationship or was it just... Uh, business. Right. So that's, you know, that is a kind of an eternal question mark. Um, someone in Joan's family is kind of suggested that they did, that he was one of her, you know, kind of one of her suitors. And he, he had by the end, by the mid to late 1940s, when they were working most closely together, his, his marriage at that time was definitely devolving. He, he ended that marriage, you know, again, right, right around the time that, um, that he and Joan were working together, but then he also remarried pretty quickly after that. So I think that, that it's really possible. Um, but I also, you know, I can also say that just in terms of their professional collaboration, it's really quite fascinating. They made really interesting movies together. You know, and I never the, knew that either. I had no I idea about Joan doing anything with Robert Montgomery. Totally shocked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's just worth, um, they're worth watching and also realizing, you know, I think he gets the credit yeah. as the prime, primary author of his films that he directed. And, and that should be complicated. You know? Yeah, and they had such uh, different sides, sort of like today, the different sides of the political Yes. They were they were complete opposites. They never talked politics, so they worked well mm-hmm. together. Um, right. Okay, so they did that. I want to give a quick uh, Robert Montgomery story. Every time I, I just have to tell the story. Uh-huh. Lauren Bacall wrote in her book that when she first moved to Hollywood, this was before she met Bogie, that she went to a party. Robert Montgomery was coming out as she was going in, and he asked for her phone number. So she wrote uh-huh. it down. He took it looked at it, crumpled it, threw it to the floor and said, too easy. Oh, my gosh. Creepo. Yeah, right? (laughs) I love that story. And I love that she did that. So um, (laughs) she, as we're we're kind of wrapping up because you have to leave. So we want to say that uh, Joan married very late. She married Mm -hmm. a writer. Mm -hmm. um, And she... 
was with him till the day she died. He was so jealous of Hitchcock, huh? Yeah, and 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 vice versa. Yeah. Um, uh, so she married Eric Ambler, who you know is a very well-known spy novelist, and they made a great couple in that way. They you know they had met while he was working on one of the Alfred Hitchcock shows, and um, I think she had hopes that maybe the three of them would pull together into a great team: a writer, a producer, and then Hitchcock being a director. But uh, Hitchcock was definitely jealous of of the fact that she had moved on, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, um, to marry and, and put a lot of her energy into that marriage. And then Eric Ambler would, especially by the 1970s and 1980s would refuse to have, you know, Hitchcock's name mentioned. Isn't I think, that the, funny? And sometimes, table, she, yeah. <laughs> sometimes you would dig him out with Clark Gable as well. But one thing I do yeah. want to make, uh, let you guys know is, Joan was brought into Alfred Hitchcock Presents. By the second year, she was the executive producer. Those are, I love them. And she also did the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Yeah. Which I love all of those things. Ella did, she was a nurse, and she produced those as well. Ella Rains Yeah. Nurse. Uh, um, the show. Somebody. Janet Dean. <laughs> RN. Yeah, yeah, Janet Dean, registered nurse. And that was in, you know, 1953 to 54, very early um, Joan Harrison was learning television at that time, and, and Ella Raines was starring as as the nurse. Yeah, so it was really great. And Joan did keep working, and then the 70s came, and she wasn't really. And uh, she lived a long life. She li- did she? What did she die of? Dementia? Was it or just old age? And right. Right. The official diagnosis is dementia. She was, you know, displaying a lot of those symptoms by the, she died in 1994. So by the late 80s, she was displaying those symptoms. But it is really a, um, a question, like different people who knew her say different things. And she cost that, a lot, right? Yeah. Well, and, and they suggest that maybe she, it was planted in her mind that she oh. was ill. And then she just started taking a lot of medication that then made her feel really Worse. groggy. Yeah. 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 So, and her husband outlived her, but she was a, a real pioneer. She was, there were only three women who were producing when Joan Harrison was doing it. And all mm-hmm. I can say is, you know, we did our hour. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thrilled you came on because we were going back and forth and trying to get the times and things like that. But we finally got together. And Thank you. I, Absolutely loved your book. I told you I reread because I read it. <laughs> I got the book right after I saw you with Eddie. So I, oh. I read not all of it. But the name of the book is Phantom Lady, Hollywood producer Joan Harrison, the forgotten woman behind Hitchcock. We didn't go through even half of what it is. So I would advise you guys to get this book. Look at the reviews she's got. She's got amazing reviews. And it's a really mm-hmm. good book. I would not lead you down the road to ruin. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> book. And she was wonderful with Eddie. You guys had a lovely rapport. I just, rapport, I love Eddie and he's the greatest. Yeah. So, and you were really good. And like I said, got me there. So you have to go. Oh, thank you. And I want to thank you, Christina Lane. Um, and not only, Christina sounds like my best friend. It's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like talking to my friend. It's wonderful because she lives now. She lives in Kentucky and I never see her because of COVID and all that. But I will be seeing her soon. Your book is wonderful. You and Eddie were adorable together. I love the two weeks you were on. And like I said, that just, you know, sign sealed, delivered. 
Amazon.com, here I come. So I meant to get that. I am going to hook you up with Christina's website and also her author site on Amazon because she's written other books. And Christina, you were a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I had a great time. And thank you for teaching me about Joan. I had no idea about her and all these other things. And so much new stuff about Hitchcock as well, you guys. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening. And thank you, Christina. And uh, stay safe, everybody. Bye. Stories of Tinseltown.